Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Sinn Féin plans to reduce the cost of education with the party unveiling plans today, which would see households earning up to €80,000 entitled to claim the back-to-school allowance, but the Thornishtha had another stark warning about the economy in the Dáil. It won't end because of any budget, whether it's an emergency budget before the autumn or whether it's one in autumn. This is something we're going to be grappling with uh, for months, uh, if not years ahead. A quarter of a century on from her death, Sophie Toscan de Plantier's son Pierre says he feels the killer will be brought to justice as a cold case review opens. There is no happy end. Okay, my mother is killed, but we need a hand. And later our week in review news panel will be here to look at other big stories. As always, join the conversation. The hashtag is tonightVMTV. First tonight, rising costs are all around us, but for families, the back-to-school and creche costs are a burden for many households. Sinn Féin plans to reduce the cost of education under new plans they unveiled today. Well, for more on this and the cost of childcare, I'm joined by Irish Farmers Journal consumer editor Kira Leahy, Fianna Fáil Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee, Sinn Féin TD Donica O'Leary, and Elaine Dunn, Chairperson of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Annika O'Leary, because this is Sinn Féin that unveiled the plan today, just as many children are out of school for the summer, but already that impending anxiety, I think, for many parents who will be facing back-to-school costs. Um, what are parents telling you uh, about their fears about paying the back-to-school costs and as a result, what, what plans do you have to tackle those rising costs? The first thing I'd say is that this isn't, I suppose, a new problem in that you look last year, one in five parents got into debts of over €500. Euro, and for a long time, parents have struggled with the cost of back to school. But this is going to be an even bigger issue this year uh, when you take into account the cost of living crisis and all the other areas that families are struggling and the fact that schools are struggling as well with rising energy costs. So we are absolutely certain that families will need additional supports and we're already hearing uh, a lot of concern from families, people who are very worried about how they're going to meet these bills. The book lists are coming through, several hundred euro, letters for voluntary contributions, several hundred euro. Um, so absolutely there's a need so for action. So what, what we are proposing, proposing? What, we, what we are proposing is in terms of the back to school uh, allowance that that would be extended to middle income earners and that 500,000 additional children would be eligible for that uh, and that would be targeted at those earning with, with an household income of 80,000 euro per under. In addition to that, in a targeted measure to ensure that those who need assistance the most get the most assistance, those who are already qualifying it would see a 50% increase. We also have a number, number of other targeted measures uh, because we need to help parents and families in the here and the now 
But we also need to address this in a long-term way. So we have a plan and legislation to tackle voluntary contributions, which are absolutely enormous. I spoke to one parent uh, yesterday who had uh, a bill of €1,700 for returning to school, including about €500 of that was in voluntary contribution. So that's absolutely huge. And just to explain about the voluntary contribution, these are you know, payments that the school would ask parents to make ahead of the school year to cover basic costs and overheads in the school. Yeah, and look, I mean, in, in lots of ways, they're voluntary in all but name. And in, fortunately, there are a minority of schools that do put a lot of pressure on parents. And many schools, uh, you know, pass on these voluntary contributions because they feel they've no choice. And the fact is there are schools that are underfunded. They don't get enough money to keep the lights on. So we recognise that you have to increase competition, which we have provided for here at primary and secondary, to substitute that. But in the long run, we have this legislation to eliminate voluntary contribution. Unfortunately, the government voted to put it back by nine months, putting back that whole process of unwinding these voluntary contributions. We want to bring it to an end. We know that's not going to happen overnight. Okay. We can reduce them. But the government actually delayed our legislation, which was a shame. OK, right here, right now, you know, the issue of rising costs right across the country for everything Lorraine Clifford Lee, people will be very well aware of. When it comes to back-to-school costs, is there no more your government can do? Well, we're actually in the bu budgetary process at the moment. We're all hearing how pressed families are from constituents that I'm speaking to every day. I'm hearing the same stories as Donica is hearing. So every minister is engaging in the budgetary process at the moment and each department will be mm. looking for the maximum Specifically, amount Specifically, though, let's, let's talk about the proposals um, that, that Sinn Féin have mooted mm -hmm. to have announced today. Yeah, are many they of reasonable? them are in place. Many of them are in place at the moment. Like and what? Uh, well, there has been an increase in the back-to-school announced, but um, I, no, I have Sinn Féin's yeah, proposals here, but... No, I'm wondering I, if many of them are in place, honest, to be if, honest. if many of them more... Uh, many of these measures are already in place, why are Sinn Féin calling for these measures? Because they're, they're in opposition, that's their, their job. No, no, but if no, they're already but, in but, place, why is there demand? And, and I'm sure plenty more will be, be done. We're in, we're in uh, engaging in a budgetary process. But families the budgetary process are won't come in time for families who are well, facing back-to-school costs. We're, we're dealing with it at the moment and we even heard some ministers today saying the budget could be brought forward to deal with it because we are very, very aware of the pressures that are on families right across the board. But in relation to Sinn Féin's proposals, it's a, a, one, a, a £161 million package and just even, I totted up some figures here and they're not adding up for me. The um, first... Um, measure in relation to extending the back-to-school uh, clothing and footwear allowance. I come in at a cost of about mm. 80 million for that, increasing uh, the 50, by 50% for those already eligible. That's 20 million. So that's only leaving 61 million for the other yeah, cost. I, so so what I'm saying... I can address that if you like. And, what and what actually, I'm saying fact, is we're not getting the full figures there. You're yeah. saying the sums aren't right. The, the sums aren't right. Just, well, like, briefly I mean, like, on that. The sums are right. And I look in terms of the extension uh, and the expansion of the back-to-school uh, allowance. It's actually, it's actually more than that. It's actually 128 million. Well, I was um, just the lower yeah, No, look, that's, that's grand, but that, that is the sum. But right. it's worth bearing in mind that with some of the other measures... How much are you going to Lorraine, if you're asking me a question, if you're, right. if you're asking me to mm -hmm. uh, elaborate on these, I yeah. will absolutely address no, that. No, it's OK. We're, Do you know what? No, no, look, you know what? People watching at home, they're going to fairness. 14.7 million. Let's take it that your 161, as you have it, is is all accounted for and you know you, you've done your own uh, sums on that but just on this matter just on the voluntary contribution for example mm. and sorry the allowance I beg your pardon just briefly to say in 2010 
So Fianna Fáil government had the back-to-school allowance as being €200 Euro per, for a primary school child and €305 Euro for a child going to secondary mm -hmm. school. Right now, those figures are more like €160 Euro and €285. Euro. So why don't they go back to the 2010 levels? Absolutely. That, that were in, in Fianna Fáil government and back in 2010. And, and people like myself in the back benches in Fianna Fáil are asking for this. We have a special parliamentary party meeting tomorrow to specifically discuss So you think the there pressures. will be movement on it? I would hope so, okay. absolutely, because I'm hearing it from families. I have a young family myself. I know exactly the pressures that families are under. So I would really hope that we would see some movement in relation to that. Kira, on, on this issue, how pressing is it for many families it's now? It's so important. I mean, it's something that I cover every year as a consumer journalist. Like in August, it's always in the diary back to school costs. And I've seen the costs rise and rise over the over the years. Last year, there was a survey done by the Irish League of Credit Unions that showed that when it came to actually doing back to school costs, about 25% of parents were ending up in debt. Now, they're of about 336 euros. Now, most of them were putting it on the credit card, but 5% were looking towards credit unions. But worryingly, 3% were looking towards money lenders. And just, if you don't mind me coming in on this voluntary contribution, I have to say, I agree, it is no more voluntary. Because when I was doing this article last year, just before going back to school, I talked to a parent who said to me, look, Kira, I want to stay off the record because of fear of retribution. She she said she looked at the voluntary contribution amount. She said, I cannot afford to pay that. So she went to her went to the school and said, Look, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't afford that this year. Mm. And their reply was, Well, we can help you set up a monthly standing order. She said that was not the reply she was looking for. Yeah, I, like it does beg the question: if there's supposed to be free education in mm. this country, it, yes. mm. why are families paying a voluntary contribution to schools, Lorraine? Well, I think we should um, really, at, at this stage, ask schools not to put pressure on people like that. Well, hang that. on a second now. You could say that schools fail, they are very under-resourced and they're not being resourced enough by the state and that's why they have to ask parents to help with photocopying costs and overheads and everything else for the school. Some people can afford to, to play a, a pay a voluntary contribution to but the But should schools. they have to, the, on principle? What do you think? Excuse me? And should they have to, on principle, pay, pay that voluntary contribution? Do you think asks, it's right? The school asks for voluntary contributions in relation to different activities that the children are involved with. No mm. child should be My excluded. point being, no family should, should... Should there have to be that payment? Or should it be, should it be a case that schools have enough money? Of course, but I mean, there, there is only so much money in the pot and uh, the, 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 the education budget is what it is. And of course, we should be adding more. And Fianna Fáil has always prioritised education within government. And I'm sure that the Minister for Education will be going uh, to the Ministers for, for Finance to actually increase the capitation grant. All right. OK, well, another big issue for parents, of course, is that of childcare. That's the view of one parent, journalist June Shannon, whose daughter attended a creche. Uh, for three years. Here's what she had to say. I do know that I took to the streets with thousands of parents and creche owners and childcare child care professionals in February 2020 to um, protest about this issue and nothing has happened. There was some tinkering around the edges um, and it did nothing. Um, I don't, to be honest with you, have much trust in the government to do anything about this. I think creche professionals, childcare professionals, are amongst the most hardworking professionals, um, dedicated professionals that I know of, and they should be earning a lot more money. The government needs to step in and significantly increase funding in this area, take the pressure off creche owners who are under pressure to pay health to pay pay childcare professionals 
a proper wage, but also to ease the burden on parents. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of this burden is falling to mothers. Um, 99.9% of mothers will take the decision to either leave the workplace, not go back to work. And once again, we're sharing the, um, the load on this. And it's just not sustainable. Families are making decisions not to have a second and third child. They're making life decisions based on the fact that they cannot afford childcare for their children. So the government would need to significantly step up. And by that, I mean a, a massive investment in childcare where the cost to the parent has been significantly reduced. I don't mean at 10 euro or 50 euro a month less. I'm looking at a, like a couple of hundred, if not more euro less for parents. And that was June Shannon who was speaking to me earlier. And Kira June had to say that where she's living, the average crash costs there, the fees are 1,200 euro mm -hmm. per month. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's not spoken about and hasn't been spoken about by many parents because they are just struggling to get through, to pay it, to try and stay in a job, to try to be able to make that job worthwhile and, and worth doing because the cost of childcare is so mm -hmm. prohibitive. Um, but as part of your research for, for stories that you're doing for the Irish Farmers Journal and investigation on this, um, you spoke to Irish families, but you also spoke uh, to a couple in Sweden. Yeah. And the difference is stark. The difference was, is so stark um, because I wanted to see what does life look like for a couple that are living in one of the best countries according to OCD levels for childcare. And the couple, uh, Jerry and Susanna McCarthy, are living in um, Sweden. Jerry's actually from Dublin. And he was saying, they were saying to me, first of all, their child is guaranteed a place in the crash sector, which, which we know is completely different to Ireland, where you are fighting for a crash space. And I know this myself. I had my child's name down on seven different crash lists and I never got a place. In terms of fees, they're looking at about 150 euros per month for their child, compared to 1,100 or 1,200 in Dublin. And not only that, as you have a second child in the sector, it, the cost reduced, so the second child is 100 euros, a third child is 50 euros. And also, the crash is open from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in the evening. So that allows for you know people doing shift work on on, on different um you, you know different schedules um so it's it's vastly different and you have to ask why why uh, you know why what is happening in Ireland and it is it's a huge state investment in Sweden it is a huge state investment and it has been going on for decades so mm. basically it goes back to the eighties or nineties. That yeah. investing. I want to bring um, Elaine Dunn in here. Elaine, you're chairperson of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. You're very well aware of the system that you're working in and the changes that need to come about to make it more affordable for all. Now, the government is making big promises around this, around the, the doubling of, of investment in the area um, over the next um, few years. Uh, do you think it's good enough? Do you think we're going to see big changes? No, <laughs> we haven't seen them so far. Yes, we are we're delighted to see the new core funding coming in. Um, it's very welcome. It has um, brought, put a lot of providers in a, quite a good way for September and fees will be frozen for those service providers that sign on for the, the new core funding. But there's a large um, cohort that have been left out and they're your ECC services. So they have been left with either breaking even or getting a small amount of money. And that funding will not cover all of the costs it won't cover the wages, it won't cover the, the rents, it won't cover all of their hikes. Okay, so this is the way that core funding is being administered, is the issue that smaller childcare providers have. Yeah, and this is why we protested in Dublin uh, last week. And it's why another protest has been organised as we speak, because there isn't enough there for those service providers. And yet we're expected to keep everything running. And our, we were chronically underfunded 
before this new core funding has been announced. We're still way behind the EU. We're 0.3 on the GDP. Like we're so far behind and it's going to take a long time for us to catch up. And it's government failings. I mean, we're 12 years taking government yeah. funding. I mean, there was a lot of fanfare around all of this. Roderick O'Gorman saying, you know, we, we, we are aware of it. We are aware it's a problem. We really want to tackle it. And yet, look, you have childcare providers coming out and saying, this is failing. Well, Elaine acknowledged that the core funding is very, very welcome and it has put childcare providers in a very good position. What she's referring to is the early years uh, education sector, which isn't childcare, it's education. Uh, children do a curriculum there. They go in for three hours a, a day to do a, a curriculum. Well, it is actually childcare, though, Lorraine. It's part I think of the you sector. would say no, for a lot I, of parents, they're I'm sending saying. their three-year-old in there, OK? So that it's means education that they don't need to privately pay a childminder. It is Absolutely. education, I, I would, but it's what also I'm a form of childcare. It's, it's a part of the education system, is the mm. point I was making, and a very, very important part of What if, what if parents can't education? get a place because smaller childcare providers say you know what, this funding isn't being allocated fairly and I can't pay my overheads. Well, there is no evidence that people have left the sector. We, it's, Can I come in? Well, I know you have done a survey. But, we did a survey, yeah, absolutely. But and childcare providers, if they're leaving the sector, uh, have to inform the department and there's no evidence of a, And you a, ask yourself why. Why would we inform TUSLA? Why would we inform the department? They have failed. They have let us down. So why would we make them our well, first port to call? I have to say I'm, I'm coming provider. from the point of view, yeah. I have two young children and I wouldn't like to add up how much I've spent over the past seven years yeah. in childcare. And it is a very, yeah. very crucial D sector. Donica, we need to reduce fees for parents. Donica, um, Look, for what, on, on this issue. Just in terms of whether you know people are leaving the sector, like, I mean, I have put down questions on this and TUSLA have said, to me in my own area in the last five years, yes, providers have left the system. I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but I can provide them after the fact, mm. but they have left the sector and there are in fact less places in Cork City than there were five years ago. So to me, that is evidence of the fact that there was an issue around sustainability there and that services were not getting adequate funding. We don't treat it as a public good uh, in the same way that we do in Sweden or some of those other countries. Uh, we need to do that. It is an issue like education and childcare to me, obviously, you know, you have different schemes, but they're all integrated. Yeah. It's all part of the same thing. Uh, and we need to ensure that um, that those wraparound uh, childcare is available. We need to ensure that all uh, providers have the opportunity and, to continue. And Kira, the bottom line really for parents um, that are watching in is really when you hear about fees of more than a thousand euro a month, is will they come down under these new measures um, announced by government? Like they're talking about a freeze from 2021 yes. fees. Yeah. Your 2021 fees are incredibly high. Absolutely. So, yeah, so if, um, if a if provider signs up to this core funding from September, the fees will be frozen. But, yes, I mean, fees have actually... Um, yeah, yeah it, but also what's going to happen as well, it, which will be beneficial beneficial for parents, is that there's going to be invest, investment in the National Child Care Scheme. So, currently, there's, there's a subsidy available for parents for mm. children up to three. That's actually going to increase to 15 years from um, September, which is going to benefit about 40,000 families, which is important, Claire, because we talk about childcare in the early years, we talk about baby rooms and everything like that, but it is important for, you know, you send a child to school at five, it's not like that they then come home, you know, and combine themselves to half five. We have to think about the parents yeah. that are also looking for after-school care. Yeah, another big issue, and I don't think we're anywhere uh, near the Nordic model, but my thanks to the panel on this. After the break, a full cold case review into Sophie Toscan de Plantier's murder, her son Pierre, gives his reaction next.
back. The Garda Cold Case Unit has announced it's to conduct a full review of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier in West Cork in 1996. DNA and witness statements could be key to this review. Well, earlier today, our crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor spoke to Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis Baudivigno, and we can take a look at his reaction to the review into his mother's murder. It's too much. We have to end with this story. So, and I think the 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 objective of of the, this uh, of the of the Irish justice with this new investigation is to finally end with this story. There is no happy end. Okay, my mother is killed, but we need a hand. But is there any message that you would have for those senior officers now who are going to? undertake this review, which will probably take around a year. I don't know how, how long it takes, but they have to do it uh, with a lot of professionalism and 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 they know what they are doing. I mean, there, there, there was a case recently and finally, after I think 41 years, they charged someone. So they know what they are doing. And I'm very, very confident, really. You feel that your mother's murderer will be brought to justice as a result of this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just want to live free again, in a peaceful way, you know. And I don't want to, to only speak about my mother, about uh, her death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to be free of that. And your hope is that this review and the, the findings of this review will bring you that peace and freedom, I'd imagine. Absolutely. For me, but also, and I insist about that, and also for Irish people. that deserve it, really. Well, to discuss this further, I'm joined by former CNN correspondent Gina London, Irish Daily Star assistant news editor Laura Colgan, and via Skype tonight by Irish Independent Southern correspondent Ralph Regal. Um, you're very welcome along to the programme. And to come to you first, Ralph, um, you've been covering this case in depth since Sophie's murder, in fact, in 1996, 25 years um, in December, just gone. It's a very long time for the family to be waiting for justice on all of this. And we heard there from Pierre, Sophie's son, saying, I feel this will bring about the justice that we are looking for. Um, what is new, do you believe, perhaps in this review that will be different to the previous reviews that have been carried out in this case? Um, what, what evidence is potentially there that could unlock this case? Yeah, well, I suppose that the major elements are the last 12 years about this unsolved murder were written. You had major and there was okay i think we, what we'll try to do ralph is we'll just try and get you back on the line there that line's just a little bit weak um on that but i'll tell you what we're going to do now um let's have a listen today because our southern correspondent paul byrne was talking to the self-professed chief suspect in this case ian bailey who has always maintained his innocence um, and let's see um, what he had to say today when he was interviewed well it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm not an innocent man totally, but I have nothing to do with this crime that I've been accused of for 25 and a half years. Are you 100% confident that you're telling the truth? I'm telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Okay, um, uh, that's Ian Bailey speaking today. Ian Bailey, for his part, is very much in favour of this review, as is the family into the case, Laura. Um, He believes and he hopes it will exonerate him. But when it comes to, I suppose, what's involved in a cold case review, uh, maybe you could could tell us what Gardaí specifically will be looking at here. Sure. So the cold case unit is also known as the Garda Serious... serious crime review unit. Uh, They're based on Harcourt Street in Dublin. It's made up of detectives who would have had nothing to do with the case up until now. And they only look at major unresolved crimes that tend to be historical in nature. So given that this murder took place 25 years ago, this is definitely in their remit. Um, So they'll be looking firstly at all of the evidence that was gathered at the time. They'll be looking to see if anything was missed or if there's any other new potential lines of inquiry. They'll also be looking to identify new witnesses. And thirdly, and most importantly, they'll be looking at DNA evidence. Um, We just didn't have the technology that we have now uh, when Sophie Toscan de Plantier passed away. So uh, that's likely to form a huge part of the inquiries. And it's likely to take up to a year, this review. It's not going to be an overnight uh, investigation. It's going to very much be a long-term thing. And, uh, you know, this unit has had success previously, so I would suspect that they will keep working on this until they have a, a resolution. Mm. Um, just on this, Garthi are pains to say that this isn't a futile operation and no resources will be spared. There were many who, who may think that, look, you've had two high-profile documentaries in this case, Laura. There's a lot of eyes. Look, and, and these are people, you know, not experts looking in on, on the handling of this case, on the entire investigation. And they'll say, well, isn't it quite timely now uh, for a review to be launched, in fact? It is. I mean, I suppose there was the the two documentaries, both the Sky documentary and the Netflix documentary into this case, um, which definitely captured, you know, the the court of public opinion, would you say, um, you know, it captured people's imaginations and, uh, you know, all kinds of theories were being put forward by people who had nothing to do with the investigation. So I think now that the Gardaí are, you know, this cold case review is being launched, it's, you know, 
we'll probably put a line under this for once and for all. This will probably be the final investigation into it. And I think they will keep going until they have a resolution to it. Mm. Um, so for once and for all. Yeah, it certainly was there. striking listening to Sophie, uh, Sophie Saint-Pierre saying he is really hopeful that there will be a resolution in this case. But I mean, Gina, I suppose to ask you, why do you believe it's, it's gripped so many? There's been international interest. And of course, these documentaries have played a part in all of that uh, and really um, in terms of people's interest in true crime, it's always been there. But I think with this case in particular in West Cork, 1996, 25 years ago, and still no resolution to it for the families, um, you know, that, that it's very painful. Well, it's the lack of closure like you saw, not only from Pierre-Louis as he was speaking, but from everyone from that area and any kind of a cold case. The evolutionary psychologists are going to tell you that since Cain killed Abel, there is a human fascination about what happens when another human being takes another human being's life. And especially true crime, as we go through all these unresolved cases and all of the podcasts and all of the documentaries that you see now that are proliferating our minds, there's a no wonder that there's so much an interest, but this case in particular, because frankly, she was beautiful, she was alone, there were those two wine glasses or glasses that were found on all the intimate details, the specific minutia of it is what compels us as we start to think about what caused another human to take another human's life and unresolved. It's interesting when you look from the broader case, cases around the world, and particularly in the United States, over the last decade, there are more unresolved cases. The numbers are getting higher. So it's interesting when you think about the more technology that's out there, like the DNA testing that Laura was referring to, why there are still an increase in the number of resolved, unresolved cases. But it also shows how much desire there is to get them resolved and get that closure, not just for people of families like Pierre-Louis, but other people all around, neighbours, family members, residents, and in this case, the Irish citizens. We spoke there um, about the technological advances that could be used now, Laura, in this case, and there was the scene in Cork. And of course, Gardaí in this case still have the murder weapon, a rock and a concrete block that was used um, in, the, in the violent killing of Sophie Toscan de Plantiate on that night in December of 1996 at her holiday home near Skull. Um, it, it's interesting that it's now that DNA uh, technology can be used and the new light that that could potentially shed on this case. It is. I think the DNA and the forensic evidence is really, uh, you know, what could bring this case to a close. And that is what hap is what happens in previous cases that this unit has looked into. Um, you know, you can't argue with DNA, you can't argue with forensics once the evidence is there. Uh, you know, and that's I presume the, the, the importance as well of fresh eyes on this case, um, because the Gardaí who were very much involved in this case, um, we know what, what, what they did around the time in 1996 and the investigations and the, the witnesses they interviewed, but having a fresh Garda layer, a team of experts on this, will really bring um, a different element to it as well, I imagine. Absolutely, and I think, you know, regardless of what happened at the time of the investigation, I think the, the guards down in Bantry feel huge pressure to get this resolved. So I think actually they're quite happy to have the unit from Dublin come down to assist them with this. Yeah, I was struck by something that Taoiseach Micheál Martin had to say about it, Gina, uh, saying it's a stain on Irish society. I mean, the fact that you have an unsolved murder, a woman who was over here alone um, in her holiday home, expected to return back to her family in France, I think, hours later, 
um, that this should happen and that no one has been brought to justice. Absolutely. When you think about what Ireland stands for in terms of hospitality and the tourism industry, the idea that a visitor can come and stay there and then be, and be murdered and have this case go and resolve for all these years is definitely a blight on the image of, of Ireland that it wants to portray out to the larger world, and especially in the light then of those recent documentaries, those, those specials, it also casts a dramatic pall over Ireland that no one would want to have. And so to get that resolved, to get that, and I think there have been a couple of reviews since 96 already, so to have this one be the culmination and actually find someone, bring someone to justice, have there be an actual process for this, to bring that closure of that unsolved murder would be a very meaningful, not just to the family, but as I mentioned, to Ireland as a whole. It's interesting, isn't it, Laura? Because people will look on and go, there's already been two reviews. Was the DNA technology not there for those previous reviews? Um, what is it specifically about now? And perhaps new evidence has come to light as a result of those documentaries. And indeed, Pierre, who, who came forward in a very public appeal, saying, he wants anyone who has any information to get in touch with the guards about this, that there may be um, more information and more that they can, they can, they have to work on now. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the nature of the investigation means that the Gardaí won't tell us what has happened exactly. But I do know definitely that since the documentaries aired, um, new witnesses or witnesses that were previously spoken to but maybe didn't mention certain things because they didn't think it was relevant, uh, you know, is something that has come up. Um, so that, along with the DNA evidence, I think is going to be crucial. Yeah, there's also the passage of time on this. 25 years, as we mentioned, it was very raw in, in West Cork. It's a very tight-knit community. And people may have been struck about the fact, um, I think, when, when they saw, you know, uh, locals speaking out, how they spoke so openly and so honestly in those documentaries that maybe with the passage of time, people are more comfortable in speaking. Um, they have recollections and, 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 and they're, they're willing to talk about them and come forward yeah, with and, that information. And again, psychologically, temperaments can change and shift because the way the community might have felt and the way that the dynamic of that community was in 19. 96, there, there could be some changes around that too and some more willingness maybe to come forward. Memories might be jogged now a little bit that maybe in the past were thinking more about what other people might think or they were concerned. And some of those maybe considerations of secrecy or of clannish, clannishism to keep, mm. to protect others and to not be someone to speak out, maybe those have eased a little bit with the passage of time. Hopefully so, and hopefully they will lead to actually some real breakthroughs on this case. Yeah, um, there have been other successes, haven't there, when it comes to re reviews and cold case reviews of cases here in Ireland, uh, Laura? There have indeed. Um, the most notable would have been the murder of Irene White at her home in Dundalk in 2005. Um, you know, the, the trail really ran cold there for years. Uh, but more, more recently, in the last couple of years, two people have been convicted of her murder. Um, so that was the same cold case unit that investigated her death. Uh, so they do have a track history of success. OK. Um, and that's because they reviewed statements in that case and 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 it led them to just find more information. It was, and there was also, as you mentioned, the passage of time, uh, kind of witnesses in that case you know, had a change of heart and did come forward after uh, a period of time and... Yeah, and we heard from Ian Bailey there, um, who does maintain his innocence in all of this. Of course, he was um, prosecuted in, absent in absentia in France on uh, this issue, um, on, this, on this case. And, um, but for him, 
he feels it's very important as well to have this review, Gina. Well, I'm not going to speculate on what he thinks or what he doesn't think, but at least what he said publicly since this, the documentaries were, I mean, he has been on record. Yeah, for, no, his solicitor and, and they've come yeah, out very strongly calling for this calling review. For, mm. Calling for the review, exactly, that's what I'm trying to say. And so it will be very interesting, though, because he was in the proximity and he had known her and had conversations and had, as you mentioned, been been convicted essentially in France and then there was a determination that he would not be extradited to that country to serve the sentences. They came out. So it will be interesting to see what comes out as the review continues. 4,000 pages of evidence, I understand, at the very bare minimum. So one year from now, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we will indeed. And we spoke to Ralph earlier and we will um, get him back again to talk about this. Um, as Gina said, there's so much um, evidence to go through um, and this story is just beginning again. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Lots more after the break, including some of the other big stories from the week. So stay with us. Gina and Laura are still here with me and I'm joined by TV and radio producer Pat O'Mahony for a look at the other big stories. And one of the biggest stories this week uh, came from the US. It was former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony against former US President Donald Trump. We can take a look at some of that testimony now where Hutchinson recounted the former president allegedly trying to direct his motorcade towards his supporters on Capitol Hill. When the president got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing, the president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Wow, she really paints a picture, uh, doesn't she, Gina? I mean, uh, explosive testimony, really, at these hearings. To date, we don't know whether, you know, we've, we've heard some of it in public. It hasn't taken off like it did this week. This hearing where the former White House aide to the chief of staff, to Mark Meadows, to the president, for her to come forward, this was an emergency session of, of the hearing. They, they had her testimony. They had her ready to go. They wanted to move that hearing forward. They were actually going to do the sixth hearing after the July 4th break. But they moved it up because, as Liz Cheney said in her closing remarks, the Republican 
former, um, the, the, the Republican who's on the select committee, who's the daughter of Dick Cheney, the former vice president, and who has been lambasted for her role and mm -hmm. staying against Trump and being part of this select committee for the hearing on Jan January 6th. When she said in her closing remarks that we had, essentially, we had to get her on because of all the witness tampering that she's alleging, that people that were agreeing to testify were saying, we've been talked to, we've been pressured. It's come out that Cassidy Hutchinson has also, was also pressured. So the committee said, we need to get her in now and hear her under oath say these things. And it was very, very damaging. To, she brought forth that the former president knew that the people at the rally at the Ellipse were armed. And his quote, according to her, was, they're not armed for me, bring them in anyway. Then he wanted to, according to her, as you just heard, wanted to actually go there mm. to the Capitol where he knew that yeah. the people were armed. He knew the election wasn't, was, he knew the election was fair. There was no evidence in tampering. He knew his people were armed. He knew it was going to be dangerous, and yet there he was. Of course, though, Pat, uh, Donald Trump in strong denial of all of this taking to social media, his own social his media own platform. His own social media, which has far fewer say it's followers all rubbish. than if We did also hear sources, though, from the Secret Service um, uh, approaching, you know, news outlets saying, you know, this isn't the full story either. And so the committee says, great, come under oath, come and testify, and that's the difference. So uh, that, uh, like, that's the next thing. That's the first time I've seen that clip. And okay. it is like I've read, I'd, I've been reading it, you know, all and I'd seen it on the news, but not that particular clip. And it's, it's, and she's a Republican, am I right? Of course, she's a, she was a Republican staffer mm, yeah. in, the, in the White House. And this is Which the thing. makes it all the more powerful. All the mm. different people that have denied the subpoena from the select mm. committee. And then the DOJ hasn't prosecuted them, like Mark Meadows was going to do, and then he didn't, and then he backed off. They've got emails, but they don't have him. Now, what it's interesting to see, another one of the, the other Republican on that select committee, um, Adam Kinzinger, he said, more people are coming forward. More people are continuing. Now they're on their break in, in, until, I think, July, July 11th, but there'll still be a couple more hearings, and then they're going to make their full report. And it might and put the pressure as well on maybe Trump supporters to so come before that, she, that, that meeting as well. Do we think she won't be discredited, the, the, the attempts to discredit her? Well, there are too many others, but there's to too many others coming forward for that to work. Okay. That's what will have to happen, is okay. we'll see if they'll be able to corroborate what wow. she said. Uh, another big story um, coming from the courts uh, stateside this week, Laura, was that of Orr Kelly, who's been sentenced to 30 years um, for sex tra trafficking, uh, child sex abuse charges. Um, it, is a, it is a very strong sentence and one that certainly we're not used to on this side of, of the Atlantic, but very welcome. And I think for the victims in this case, there's been documentaries actually about Orr Kelly and we've really heard their pain and their need for justice. Absolutely. And uh, as you said, these allegations date back to as far back as 1994. This case was a long time coming and I... The, the lengthy sentence, I suppose, is a real uh, example that it's never too late for justice to prevail. Um, uh, one of the, the victims said outside the court yesterday that she felt like she'd been testifying for decades. Uh, so, you know, standing up in court and saying what had happened to her was, you know, kind of no big deal. Um, you know, the lengthy sentence is not something we would see here in Ireland, the fact that this is a mm -hmm. case in the US, uh, you know, and that was the jurisdiction was really significant. But this is a real example that, you know, it's never too late for justice to prevail and that nobody, no matter how much money or fame or power they have is above the law. Of course, Ghislaine Maxwell as well, sentenced to 20 years behind bars. But to move to stories back home mm. and COVID um, is back among us. 
and we're seeing with this wave, this summer wave, as they're calling, the impact that all of this is having and the fact that they're winding down the COVID testers as well, Pat. Mm. Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen it with the flights being cancelled. I'm glad I'm not going on holidays anytime soon. Um, but we now have no notion of what the actual figures are because the testing is, you know, is being wound down. Uh, I know we know how many people are in hospital, etc. But the level of infection in the community. I mean, I was at Crowded House last night in Dublin, in Trinity, and I was thought, the Crowded House. It, I, I was. It was the most aptly named band. Not while we were there. It was. It was fine. But as we were coming in and leaving. You know, we were funneled. And I did feel just a little uncomfortable because the, pre, uh, the first gig I went to after mm. uh, the, the restrictions were lifted was Echo and the Bunnymen in, in the Olympia in Dublin. And three days later, I tested positive for COVID. Yeah, and did, did, you, did you wear a mask? Did, were people wearing no. a mask now? In no, it was outdoors. Oh, no. So, you know, and, and yeah. there was plenty of space at the gig. It was only when you were coming in and leaving that it got a bit... Crowded. And Laura Pat mentioned there about the airports feeling the effects, I suppose, of a huge shortage of staff, first off. And now we have this COVID outbreak as well that we know is affecting um, airlines such as Aer Lingus, who've had to ca cancel numerous flights. And um, what happened to you on your flight out to, I to London at the weekend? I flew to London last week. I was on a Ryanair flight and Michael O'Leary himself was at the boarding gate uh, scanning your pass and checking your passport. I think you took a picture uh, of him I there. I did indeed. There he was. So I he, hope he was he all right with that being taken. I'm sure he was. I'd I think he, he likes saw to me be taking it. He, uh, no, in fairness to him, he, you know, I think he, you know, often speaks very loudly about what he thinks should or shouldn't happen, but he definitely, uh, but is, you know, did what he said he wanted yeah. to do. Uh, I suppose, isn't it a reflection of how desperate things are that you have to have the CEO of an airline checking your ticket before you well, get on the flight? Well, a good PR move too, and Michael O'Leary has never been shy about Maybe he knew, PR you, <laughs> maybe he knew <laughs> you were getting on that flight, Laura. <laughs> he knew someone somewhere would take there a would picture. There would be a camera, yeah, there'd yeah, be a phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it, but COVID's not gone, and there's increased numbers of people trying to travel. Staffing all over in the United States, even in the last four hours, there were 47 cancellations of flights. Mm. I mean, on the on the misery mapping over at FlightAware, which is a great a great resource to check. But this is what we're looking at in the summer. People want to travel, but COVID's still real, and there's sh there's staffing shortages all over. In and the now we're seeing the industry. army on standby as well at, oh uh, at Dublin God. Airport over this matter. And we are hearing um, stories from some, uh, at least, who, who've said they've had to queue for a very long time to even get into the terminal um, over the past couple of days. And I'm sure heading into the weekend, as all the schools are off now as well. Um, let's talk about what's happening in Scotland because there's been a, a referendum announced. Of course, they said mm. no the last time out. This is pre-Brexit. They said, no, we will stay in the UK. But it could differ now, couldn't it, Pat? What's interesting is the, the, the most recent figures I saw still puts the no slightly ahead that they don't want independence. But Brexit is a real unintended consequences uh, phenomenon. In the same way as, you know, Putin invaded Ukraine, hoping to destabilise NATO, he's done exactly the opposite. But Brexit was supposed to unite the United Kingdom. And Northern Ireland and Scotland are currently looking, uh, I won't say shaky and weak, but, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has just uh, announced, as you said, the independence mm. referendum. Whether it'll happen, whether they'll have to go to court or whether they'll fight the next election on that basis remains to be seen. I was intrigued that a couple of hours later, was it a day later, she had a private meeting with the Queen? 
I wonder, did that topic come up? Yeah, it's not supposed to in terms of the politics of the Queen. Did one bring it up? It, it wasn't. <laughs> there were no notes taken at the meeting, so they could. could have but said it anything. does say a lot about about what again with the the fragility of Boris Johnson's government. Can can he demonstrate that he can hold the United Kingdom together? It doesn't look like he can. I'm yeah, sure Boris um, can hold a party. We know well, that. Look, speaking yes. of parties, we briefly just want to get to all the gigs are back. You mentioned yes. uh, a crowded house, a crowded house. But Paul McCartney at Glastonbury really stole oh. the headlines, didn't he, Laura? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he was the, the oldest ever headliner, but I mean, I think that was irrelevant. I think he was, you know... And the night before Stand was the youngest. Bruce Springsteen and, and, and Dave Grohl. And he had such, I mean, I saw him years ago, in, about five years ago in Chicago in, in Lollapalooza. And he played for two years, or two, two years, not be long, two hours <laughs> with not a glass of water. So to have him there in Glastonbury. And then let's give some credit to Diana Ross the very next oh, day. Oh, brilliant. Not a bad time Super for oxygenarians. Paul, Paul McCartney watching it reminded me of what... It must have been like to see Pele play with the New York Cosmos in okay. 75. Past his peak, well, but still magnificent. I would just have to imagine. That's it from us. My thanks to Gina, Laura and Pat and all my guests tonight. From all the team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.